As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. Go country by country. Things are getting worse for democratic politics. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, joined by a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table, Jacob Weisberg. It's actually his table. Jacob is the chairman and editor-in-chief of the Slate Group. His most recent book is Ronald Reagan, A Biography, and we're actually in the beautiful Slate Studios in Brooklyn. Joining us from Washington is Keith Johnson, the deputy managing editor of the news team at Foreign Policy. And calling in from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. We're finally at the end. Election Day is here, or was recently, depending on when you're listening to this. So all you ER nerds submitting ideas about a Trump presidency are going to have to get more creative. Nonetheless, feel free to drop us a line at erpodcastforeignpolicy.com if you have any episode ideas, comments, or other kinds of needs that you feel we can fulfill. By the way, on on election night, I'll be hosting a party at the Comedy Cellar in New York City. ER regulars like Ed Luce, David Sanger, and Max Boot will be there, along with comedians like Dove Davidoff, Mo Amer, and Namish Patel. And we'll be live streaming the entire event. So I hope you'll tune in for an extra dose of ER nerdism, the funnier kind. The link to the live stream can be found on foreignpolicy.com. So, recently... From our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from here in Brooklyn, and from Palo Alto, we had the following conversation. Jacob, um, you guys have done some great work around the Trump candidacy. Uh, You have a Trump cast that you do following the peregrinations of this wonderful character on our national stage. And tomorrow or today or yesterday, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it's all going to be decided. And I'm worried. I'm worried about you, Jacob. I'm worried. (laughs) I'm worried. Don't worry about me. (laughs) Worry about the fate of the world, David. Well, I'm not so worried about that. I'm worried about PTSD, which I call post-Trump stress disorder. (laughs) Like, how are you going to adjust? You know, he produces adrenaline and excitement. And when, you know, you and I were talking about it before we walked in, we said we sort of tomorrow is the choice between apocalypse and anticlimax. And it's increasingly looking like Hillary Clinton, thank God, is going to win this thing. And we are going to move forward into more of the same. <laughs> We're gonna, you know, the, it, things are going to change much less than they could have changed. We maybe breathe a sigh of relief, but are, are you going to get bored? 
Well, I, I don't mind being bored a little bit. I mean, the managing the anxiety around Trump has become a real problem. I mean, all my friends are experiencing and talking about it. And, you know, it's not a joke. I mean, I haven't been sleeping that well. I mean, it's really it's really worrisome. And this weekend, I found I just had to get away from it a little bit and try to do other things as opposed to, you know, checking to see if 538 had changed its forecast. But I think you're right. I think we're going to have a big hangover. I think in all likelihood, Trump's going to lose. Thank God. We're going to wake up on Wednesday and think, my God, nearly half the country just voted for this this bigot, this nationalist, and it represents not just a tremendous change in how we have to think about politics in America, but it's part of a global tide around populist nationalism, and it, that tide is going to sweep over other places, even if it even if we dodge the bullet. Sorry to mix the metaphor there. So, so you, what you're concerned about is that this is sort of. The beginning or or the extension of this trend of the rise of the right, and that's likely to be something that we're going to still have to contend with for some time to come. It's the rise of a right that's different from the right we've known all our lives. This isn't the Reagan right. This isn't a different view of how what government's role should be. It's a it's a right that does not agree on the fundamental premises around liberalism, around international institutions, around a free press. Uh, and I think you have to link Trumpism to what is happening, certainly with Brexit, um, with the Le Pen movement in, in Europe, with other neo-fascist movements in Eastern Europe, uh, and really with the decline of the sort of liberal international order, which was on the upswing until 10 to 5 years ago and is now in serious decline almost everywhere in the world. This must make you very uncomfortable, Corey. No, it actually doesn't. Because I think the fundamental cause, I agree with everything he just said, but I think the fundamental cause is the economic dislocation of the way that that globalization and the revolution that information uh, technologies and pervasiveness are creating. I, I do agree that we on the right have a lot of work to do because we have failed to provide principled conservative policies that address these voters' concerns, but I do think that is doable. And and the while I agree with Jacob that that this has effects on internationalism and other things, the fundamental driver in my judgment is economic. And so if we get our hands around helping people to manage this economic change, then I actually think you can defang a lot of the other things and drive a lot of the ugliness that we have seen, which is indefensible, the anti-Semitism, the racism, the misogyny, all of those things can be driven back underground where they have always existed uh, if we solve the economic drivers that I think are causing this great disruption. Isn't the main thing that you're really worried about with this election, Corey, that your sister has played a central role in the Clinton campaign and that she's <laughs> going to have her that she's going to have her hands on the the levers of power? And I mean, Not you know, at you, all. 
I would be, I would sleep better at night if my sister's finger was on the nuclear button because she is an eminently sensible, intelligent human being. That's great. I would, by the way, sleep fine at night if one of my two siblings' finger was on the nuclear button, but I'm not going to say which one. (laughs) The other one, I'm not so sure about. Um, Keith, this is a big buzzkill. Hillary Clinton is going to win a well-deserved election. Her story is kind of the American dream given you know her mother being abandoned by her parents when she was a kid to taking in laundry working her way from the bottom up hillary becomes the first woman president coming out of that background i'm getting misty eyed even thinking about it <laughs> donald trump is being consigned to the dustbin of history and all i'm hearing from these guys is problems i'm sure you spent your weekend unable to sleep also keith but for other reasons how do you, what's <laughs> what's your prognosis no, I uh, I have to agree with you because I share Jacob's uh, angst and anxiety like I think most people do and, and tried to at one point separate myself from uh, the interwebs yesterday until Jim Comey wrecked my weekend again. Um, the one thing that I would say, the reason I think that there's pessimism and Corey, I, I think, hit the note here, the economic dissatisfaction drives a lot of the problems here. We saw that as well in the Brexit voting areas of uh, the U.K., uh, you see a lot of similar uh, issues in Central and Eastern Europe. You don't have populism and this kind of economic angst or anxiety or whatever in Asia. And there's a lot of Asian countries, starting with China, despite the slowdown, that have been the greatest winners from decades of globalization. And so you see the West, whether it's the Western Europe or the U.S., second-guessing globalization and moving to even roll back some of the the global integration of the economy while Asia wants to uh, make that even more of a permanent fixture of the international system. And I think what's interesting here is we're at a moment where China's already been trying to reshape the global order in their image. This may actually give Asia both the means and the opportunity to further redraw the international order in its own image. And I, I just think that's something the Western world might want to keep in mind. You know, I always agree with you on almost everything, right, Keith? Well, usually, yeah. Usually, oh, no. yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, boss. No, yeah. Shut up, Keith. In this particular case, I have to say I couldn't disagree with you more. I mean, setting aside uh, the Philippines, where you have actually the world's number two nut job running a country, because Kim wait, Kim Jong Un, oh, okay, yeah, you know, that's, he's that's re- a high bar. <laughs> he's that's retired it, yeah. the trophy. <laughs> um, but but you know, so the, the, you have populism there. The, the nationalism in Japan is is still pretty strong, and the, uh, uh, there is a kind of strong populist strain there. Periodically, when things go off the track in 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 China, the thing they do is vilify the Japanese and and get kind of neo nationalist there. There is a big movement along the same lines in Thailand, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's plenty of populism in Asia. It doesn't undercut the point that you make about countries standing by to 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 embrace global trade in a way that we haven't. Uh, although, you know, the story of the modern era of globalization and the embrace of trade as a driver of growth was the East Asian miracle, right? I mean, it, it was actually a story that started um, in Asia. I want to I switch the, the, the focus just a trifle here um, because I was just thinking about Jacob having written this book about Ronald Reagan, and I really want to find somebody to blame for Donald Trump. Uh, and some people have said, well, it goes back to Barry Goldwater. Uh, and other people say it's the Tea Party. 
or the degradation of the Republican Party post Tea Party. But Ronald Reagan was a guy sort of out of nowhere, a movie star. He was, you know, in in, in many respects seemed kind of intellectually ill-suited for the presidency. Um, and the, the, the right that exists today in America has made him a sort of quasi-deity, which requires actually setting aside facts in a way that Trump has set aside facts. So I'm just wondering how or if you can trace the roots of Trump to Reagan. Uh, I think there look there are certain connections. I mean, Reagan was in many ways the first celebrity in politics. Although, unlike Donald Trump, he thought moving from acting to politics was actually changing professions. <laughs> where, where Trump thinks it's just a continuation of the same overall profession of being being a celebrity. I don't blame Reagan much for Trump. I think Trump is really a repudiation of, of Reaganism at every level. And while I take your point about the excessive deification, which is often un- very unrealistic about Reagan in terms of what he actually believed and what he actually did, we have lived with fundamentally with a Reaganite Republican Party since 1980. This is the party believes in smaller government, believes in lower taxes, believes in less regulation, believes in free trade, was pro-immigration. It's a set of – it's certainly a, a form of conservatism that in some respects I disagree with, but I'm very comfortable with it. And I think it's a intellectually coherent view of the world that can be highly principled. What the Tea Party was an early signal for uh, and what Donald Trump really figured out is that didn't really represent what people voting Republican thought, that on almost every point they disagreed with that. They didn't particularly want less help from government. Most of the people, working class people voting Republican wanted more help from government. They don't want lower taxes on rich people. They don't particularly care about regulation. They are against trade. They're against immigration. And point for point, he has thrown over Reaganism. And I think the party is now going forward, post-Trump, is going to be fractured between the Trump populist nationalists and the rump of the old Reagan party. I'm afraid that the the party of Trump is going to be the dominant one. I don't think Reaganism has – people will deify Reagan personally, but in terms of his views, I think they're kind of over in the Republican Party. So, Corey, where do you come out on this Trump versus rump divide? I don't disagree that there's a very deep cavern running through the middle of the party. I also agree that that chasm represents the failure of establishment Republicans like me to provide policy solutions from a principled conservative place that addresses the very real anxieties and dislocation that Trump voters that I think are driving Trump voters. Um, That said, I take the view David Rothkopf has expressed on this uh, podcast several times, which is that I just I just want all the I want all the (laughs) listeners to to know that I'm clutching my chest at the moment. (laughs) Everyone agrees with you on your show, David. It's a little suspicious. David paid for this microphone. You don't you don't you don't you're not you don't listen often enough. Okay. Yes. Okay, Corey. Okay. Fifty years from now for falling for that setup because I'm just about to use you to to take the basis of your current argument away from you, which is that 50 years from now, people looking back are going to say, this is the moment at which 
you know, the United States uh, in this very turbulent period, First, they elected a black president, then they elected a female president, and then they proceeded to solve the malaise of their current predicament, um, which is that I do think there are lots of reasons for optimism, despite the deep divisions in our parties, um, and that the solution to that is actually winning the policy arguments, which, it, which we all need to do on both sides of the aisle, but particularly on my side of the aisle. These are winnable arguments, but we have to win them. Keith, I know you to be somebody who spends a lot of time outside the United States, has friends outside the United States, has relatives, et cetera, et cetera. What, the day after this election, when they say, please explain what has happened to me, did, was this a near miss? Is America fundamentally different? Is this a sign of future problems to come? How do you interpret it for them? Well, I think a lot of this depends on the question that, that Jacob was just raising, which is how much of Trumpism is left behind after Trump? I, and I mean, you know, you could look at the election result again, assuming uh, that Clinton wins and say, OK, well, the United States dodged a bullet. But how true is that? Because if it in fact becomes the dominant party and if you have sort of a an anti-trade, anti-globalist, uh, nativist party with an isol- isolationist bent that hasn't really been seen since you know before World War II, um, that's a fundamental change which is going to constrain everything that the next president does regardless of the outcome on November 8th. So I think a lot of it depends – I think the, the message I would have – and this is what I've been saying to friends of mine in, in, uh, in Europe, in Japan, is uh, – you know, we, we we may get a reprieve on November 8th in terms of the international uh, situation and people can, can take a deep breath. Uh, but that doesn't mean that all of the problems that have been raised in this campaign are suddenly going to evaporate. So let's play an exercise here. And this will be therapeutic for you and help you get get through the PTSD. <laughs> um, you, you, you wake up on the morning of, of Wednesday the 8th. You have a little bit of a headache. You've had a couple of drinks the night before. Donald Trump has lost. He's lost by six percent. Well, that would be that would be big in terms of what the uh, polls no, I, are saying. No, yeah. the yeah. polls today yeah. are saying four percent. The day the day we're we're doing this, but I'm just saying it's slightly right. bigger. It's more a little more decisive. And Democrats have won the Senate. Democrats have won the Senate. They picked up eight or ten seats in the House. Okay, but you're a New Yorker. You live in New York. You live the life of New York. You breathe the neurotic air of New York. And so you can't really begin your day unless you have something to worry about. <laughs> We've dodged the bullet. What are you worried about the morning after the election? I'm, I'm probably – look, I think that would, be, that would be a strong sense of relief and it would be you – know, I think you could argue in that case. I mean I'm not, I'm not a pessimist in general and I would probably argue in that pace that, case that, look, Trump may have represented the high watermark for sort of uh, white nationalism as a resurgent phenomenon in the United States, because if you look at demographic trends, it gets worse every election. He was probably the most charismatic candidate who was going to argue that view with the maximum number of available supporters. And that's no one running on those views is ever going to do better than that. So that would I would I would feel positive about that outcome. I think I would I would turn to the rest of the world and I would go back to the the point I was making at the beginning about the reaction to the liberal order globally, because I think in Russia, China, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, you know, you go go to the Philippines, I mean, go country by country, things are getting worse 
for democratic politics. And I, uh, this plenty to keep fretting about about that, right? Well, that's true. So, Corey, it's you. You're waking up the next morning from this this traumatic experience, although you did play, I, I have to note here, a courageous role in being one of the Republicans to sign the letter very early on repudiating Trump. Uh, but you wake up, you do your morning ritual. It's California, so you have to go meditate. You light a candle in front of the <laughs> Trinity of George H.W. Bush, James Baker, and Brent Scowcroft, where you you know you you meditate each morning. Then <laughs> what do you start to worry I'm not, about? I'm not familiar with this particular cult. Sorry, can you tell us a little more about it? <laughs> David is exactly right. As the sun rises in the east, we Californians pause and envision the flame of enlightenment coming from Buddha's blue hair and are grateful that that Mother Earth threw up the Rocky Mountains to be a picket fence to protect us from East Coast attitudes. That's wow. absolutely you know, true. It sounds like you've given this some thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm worried about several things, though. First, I am worried that a six-point win by, a, by this Democratic candidate and her supporters will be interpreted as a sweeping policy mandate, uh, especially if Democrats get the Senate. And I think that could well exacerbate the problems that we have because it may tempt the new president to, for example, go for go early and big on immigration in a way that might alienate Republicans in the Congress and make more difficult the huge and crucially important policy decisions that the country needs to build common ground in the middle on, like immigration, like Social Security reform, like debt reduction. Um, so, So I worry that Clinton will overreach believing she has a mandate. The second thing I worry about is that if the only Republican branch of government is in the House, I think we could see a repeat of the kind of obstreperousness that has made sensible, moderate policy advances impossible in the last uh, eight years. I don't, I should rush to say, I think the way President Obama overreached in 2008 has a lot to say about why Republicans were so obstreperous, but they nonetheless objectively were that obstreperous in a way that that missed a lot of opportunities for doing the country good. So I hope Republicans uh, won't take one branch of government as as a governing majority, but will instead understand that even getting 30% of what they want is better than where we are and to work cooperatively. Those are the two things I'm worried about. Corey, can I ask you a question? Because a minute ago, you, you were saying that you thought Republicans were in this Trump pickle because they hadn't supported policies that helped people with economic dislocation brought on by globalization, technology change, et cetera. What are the policies that, that 
Hillary Clinton supports that you oppose? And what are the Republican ones that you think would help with that? I mean, as, as I understand it, she supports people having health care when they lose their jobs. She supports people having daycare, portable pensions. I mean, all these things that help people cope in an economy where they're where working people are not tied to one employer for their whole life. And there's just a couple things you just mentioned, debt reduction and, and something about Social Security wouldn't seem to do anything to address that. So what's the what's your reform Republican version of helping these people, these sort of desperate people who turn to Trump because nobody did anything for them? So Paul Ryan's better way, I think, covers all of those areas and very well. The problem for me is less Clinton's policies than the affordability of Clinton's policies. And and while she says she won't add a dollar to the deficit, that is manifestly impossible given uh, the policies that she has laid out. So I think finding a way to thread, I absolutely agree that breaking that portability of benefits delinked from present employment would be a huge step forward. I also think transitioning, adjustment transition. Anyway, you guys know what I mean. <laughs> Making. But I just think I think you've you've sort of exemplified the problem you pointed out here because you know the Paul Ryan budget, you know, which first of all does nothing to advance those kind of policies, would remove the core ones like the ACA, but also in, in pure economic terms doesn't doesn't add up and is basically just a, a move away from, from government and a, and a big tax cut for wealthy people. I mean, that doesn't address that at all. No, actually, actually quite the contrary. But, but just let me throw this in here because I, I, I don't want to let the opportunity go by to, to note that it's not actually Democrats that increase the deficit. I mean, your concern is that she's not going to pay for what she does, but it's actually Republican administrations that increase the deficit. It is true that I mean, Republican I hate to, administration. I hate to insert facts. I hate David, to insert it is facts true that Republican administrations increase the deficit. It is also true that President Obama increased the deficit enormously. So. So I think that talking point's true of the Clinton administration in the 1990s. It's not true of the Obama administration. Not to get all not to get all facty, Corey, but you know, at the beginning of the financial crisis, the the the, the beginning of the Obama administration, the deficit swelled to something like eight nine percent of GDP, and it's now back in the three four percent range because of steady deficit reduction year after year under the well I mean the most most economists don't think there's a problem with the deficit per se if it's you know in the three percent range but but you just said he Obama had increased it in fact he's drastically reduced it in his eight years in the White House federal debt has doubled in his eight years in the White House well now you're talking about debt that's a different question but of course the debt is the you know is the accumulated deficits the history of that is they began with Reagan. Uh, the structural deficit really has opened up with with Ronald Reagan's economic plan in 1981, and it hasn't been eliminated. But you know, it's pretty hard to argue at this point that Republicans are the fiscally responsible party and Dem- Democrats are the opposite. I mean, it's really it's actually it's, not it's that li- hard for me to argue against that. Okay. <laughs> well, no, it may not be hard, but the facts don't support your argument. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, Keith, you know, I think that with this brings us to an interesting question again for. The point of view of people overseas trying to interpret this, um, uh, Jacob described a Republican Party 
that was, you know, sort of also the one that I think, you know, Corey believes in, which was strong on on defense, uh, uh, you know, had had a host of policies, pro-immigration and so forth, pro-trade. Anti-Russia. Anti-Russia. <laughs> right. and, 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 and wow, the, do I miss Trump... that part of our party. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Trump part of this is has flipped the, the narrative on all of those things. Um, you know, tr- Trump is is certainly the, the more reckless and inexperienced candidate in terms of national security issues, certainly anti-immigration, uh, certainly pro-Russia to an extent that we've never seen from an American uh, presidential candidate, et cetera, et cetera. Do you expect these changes to last? This is really the big question, right? And Tom, Tom Wright at Brookings has done a lot of stuff for more than a year now pointing out that uh, – Trump's foreign policy view is not insane or, or incoherent, um, but it's actually the product of decades of a very sincerely held worldview that alliances uh, cheat the U.S. and are a burden and that uh, international trade deals are not as advantageous as they should be and that strong leaders are good leaders. And that worldview has been consistent for him for at least 30 years. That's the view that he has campaigned on. He's gotten an awful lot of support. What hasn't gotten so much support uh, are the traditional bread and butter sort of Paul Ryan issues, uh, the tax cuts for the wealthier Americans, minimizing government services for people in red states who are, again, the the largest takers of federal transfer payments. uh, health care, uh, greater access to insurance, uh, greater access to uh, veterans issues, things like this. All of the things that the Republicans have been campaigning on for less and less and less, uh, his supporters have been calling for more and more and more, but with this ugly overtone. And I think that's the big question is, to what extent does Trumpism survive Trump and how does the GOP deal with that? Okay, we're not going to be able to answer that question here. We've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, and I want to go back to an assertion that was made earlier and try to determine whether it's true or not. Jacob, you said that you are fundamentally optimistic. Um, OK, we're now coming to an election where the outcome is presumably the outcome that you wanted to have. Uh, you have a qualified president probably entering office. Uh, a, a very uplifting story, first woman president in the history of a country that has not given women a fair shake for most of its existence. Experienced people in all likelihood coming into position. We'll talk, we've talked about that before. We'll talk about that again. That sounds pretty good. The morning after all of this, what are you most hopeful about? Well, I think the – I mean I'm optimistic both by disposition and uh, by analysis in many respects. I guess I would point to two things. One is I think culturally and socially the United States is in the midst of making tremendous strides. And you, if you look at um, gay rights or consciousness on race or women's equality, you could make an argument that this election has actually ser- will have served a valuable purpose because that, those have been the fundamental issues of the of the election and things that sort of didn't used to even be spoken about are spoken about and change happens very quickly. But I also think the basic condition of the American economy is not bad. Uh, gr- not only has gr- we were in the seventh year of an expansion, um, growth is a little bit subpar, but the most recent numbers have indicated that ep- economic growth is starting to be widely shared and that there is a trend possibly that's counter to the trend of widening inequality. But I think you know you could make an argument too that we're ex- experiencing the overhang of the financial crisis of a very bad and deep recession. And 
that you know unemployment's under five percent. There's wage growth. I don't think the country's in terrible shape economically. In relative terms, relative to most of the rest of the world, it's in very good shape economically. Excellent, Corey. You're sitting there in sunny California. Maybe the sun has even started to rise. What do you feel in this vein? I share that optimism that the economy is strengthening and that that this has been such a dystopic election cycle because we're in the midst of an enormous economic transition and that we're going to figure it out and that that's going to calm the populist moment. I'm also optimistic because my theory of the Clinton presidency is that we are overestimate we we conservatives are overestimating her hawkishness on foreign policy but we may be underestimating the extent to which a president that perhaps because of her age may choose to be a one-term president and want to be a president known for something besides gender and may therefore choose two or three big issues, immigration, social security reform, that that the country is overdue for big, important centrist policy changes on, and, and she will choose to spend her time on those, and that would be genuinely great for our country. Setting aside for a moment the one-term presidency thing, which uh, I think is carrying your optimism into the realm of the unlikely, Keith, what about you? Uh, as you can probably tell, I'm not very optimistic about a lot. But um, <laughs> if, if, if I did have to continue to, to flog my, my dead horse, um, I would say the one interesting thing that could come out of this is a positive reaffirmation of what the U.S. role is in the world. And, and I think after all of the questions of why do we have alliances? Are we getting gypped? Uh, what good is NATO? Uh, why can't we work with Russia? Uh, why should we have the TPP? What are we a Pacific nation? All of these unanswered questions, or, or in some cases, the, the exact opposite you know, proposition from the Trump campaign. I think now there's an opportunity for the country to say, look, who are we? Where are we? What role do we play in this world? Why do we make the world a more stable or prosperous, you fill in the blank, place? And that national conversation, I think, is overdue. That could come after November 8th. So I would like to chime in here as we conclude with my point of view on this, and that is Go long on optimism. I believe we're about to enter a period of unprecedented optimism in the United States, and I think we're going to do it for the reasons Jacob talked about. The economy's in good shape, and it's getting better. We're the richest and most and strongest nation in the world. By far, no one else has our capacity militarily, politically, or economically, and no one else is going to for a long time. We're the place when people leave their countries that most of them want to go to in the world still the place that produces the most patents. We are still the place that has the best system of higher education. We are the leader in the areas of innovation where, which are likely to drive the future economy from uh, biotech to nanotech to big data and, and so forth. Uh, we are strategically well located away from a lot of the problem areas in the world. We're about to elect the first women in our history, which is a, is a really major breakthrough, not just for us, but for democracy Overall, we will have seen our system work and repudiate and defeat um, a dangerous, evil person 
who was at the head of a dangerous evil movement which suggests that American democracy works and American voters are engaged. Uh, we have problems as we have always had problems, but we have more means to solve the problems we have now than we have ever had. Um, Tom Friedman's next book has a subtitle that talks about it being an optimist guide to the, the next steps in the future based on his three and a half years of reporting. And I will give you a little bit of a hint just because there's only 11 people listening to this podcast, the next issue of Foreign Policy um, uh, is has, has the cover story, which won't come out for three or four weeks yet, but the cover story is the case for optimism. We are doubling down. We are betting on optimism. We believe in optimism, even though Keith Johnson works in our offices <laughs> under a gray cloud like Joe Multiplosis or whatever it was from little uh, Abner. Um, and we hope that when you listen to this, if it's during Election Day, um, that you go and do whatever you can to make sure that there is the kind of opt outcome that supports this optimistic view. And if you listen to it the day afterwards, uh, amidst your celebration and your hangover, uh, that you recognize that the reason that we have elections is to tee up opportunities and not further divisions, and that we focus on seizing those opportunities. Prior to all of that, though, let me thank Jacob Weisberg, let me thank Keith, let me thank Corey, and let me thank all of you for listening. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining.